0: And uh, one of the things that I don't like about modern day teaching is people were always figuring out what's wrong with a great player's swing. You know, guys who can't break 85 with an eraser are telling you why Tiger Woods has got a bad swing. So that bothers the hell out of me, to be honest with you. So our dad taught us to look at good players and figure out why their swing works, mm-hmm. not what's wrong with it. In 1744, the first golf club with a definite
1: proof of origin was the Company of Gentlemen Golfers Who Played of Leith, now called the Honourable Company of Edinburgh Golfers Who Play at Muirfield. It was that year when several gentlemen of honour, skilful in the ancient and healthful exercise of the golf, petitioned the Edinburgh City Council to donate a silver club for their annual competition on the Leith Links. The winner of the competition was declared Captain of the Golf for the Year, and a silver ball with the date and the captain's name inscribed upon it was attached to the silver club. Thank you for listening to the Silver Club podcast. Here's your host, two-time Walker Cupper and former World Amateur Number One Steve Scott, and men's golf coach at Yale University and golf historian Colin Sheehan.
2: Okay, Colin, it's uh, it's wonderful to be back with you. The third edition of our podcast, uh, we it just keeps
1: getting better and better. We've got the great Bill Harmon. Thanks, Steve. You're doing a great job. I the first two interviews were terrific, and I just uh, I just I really enjoyed this most recent one well done this is that was a delight you're uh, i think the uh, listeners are in for a treat for this two-part uh, interview with bill Harmon.
2: we got so much great info from bill Harmon. we will do a two-parter so uh part one we'll uh have a, some pretty cool discussions about his days at at seminole and having ben hogan over for dinner at his house and with his his father, the 1948 uh, Masters champion Claude Harmon, but but before we get to that, uh, we we kind of go back in history a little bit uh, on the technology in the game, and and that's always a, a great hot button topic. And you know, from from your perspective, I know that you deal with a, a as the men's Yale golf coach, you get a lot of track man numbers from players and. And, you know, all these players looking to perfect their swings. And, you know, what? as a college coach, what sort of things do you look for in the players' games to want to get you going and get you looking after them more?
1: It's funny, you know, you, you can almost – you can go to a tournament – and you could you could be worse off for having watched them. You could you can it can be misleading to see their pretty swing. Before I go and see any kid, I I will have most likely seen his resume and his scores, and have to be to some extent. You have to be a little bit like Billy Bean, the general manager of the Oakland A's, and not fall in love with some kid who has just uh, a gorgeous swing. His sort of scores don't seem to be there, and at the same time, it's very easy to discount a kid with a uh, quirky, uh, unorthodox swing. Yeah,
2: it's those intangibles, really. I think that those are the most special things. Now, so many people think that their score is directly related to how perfect their swing is, or how perfect their TrackMan numbers are, and that just that stuff just doesn't always compute does it
1: listen Braden Thornberry was one of the was the number
2: one amateur in the world he's and got a quirky move at the ball too i mean not jim furick quirky but
1: uh, you know it's not the it's not that pretty perfect textbook look he was passed he he got passed over by some other programs old miss was lucky to get him or there there were, they were for, you know not lucky to get him they they got him but after his success, I know that some coaches admitted uh, credit, credit to them for acknowledging that they sort of overvalued um, the appearance of a swing as a as a detriment. And you're right; it's you cannot you cannot measure a kid's drive on just by watching him and play a few holes or or one round or his 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 drive to improve. And get better, and and the ability to address the shortcomings in in their game, and and whether or not they're going to constantly work at things and or try to uh, improve and scrap their games. I think that's one of the hardest things for a golfer coming of age. It's easy to watch any telecast and they'll they'll do sort of swing vision hub uh, reviews of, of of these players, and they're going to point out all the things they, they're sort of doing right and wrong. And I—that is the impulse and instinct of so many young amateur golfers, professional golfers—make adjustments that maybe ultimately, down the road, in hindsight, may not have been a a smart play. I mean, we all know about Tiger's sort of efforts to constantly update his swing. I'm curious to know at what point, what point in your your game in your career did you sort of, did you feel the need to make any adjustments? After you had sort of already reached the mountaintop of amateur golf, yeah, I know. Yeah, it's, it's a that's a
2: wonderful question. And I think really, I didn't really have a golf coach between or a, a swing coach per se between the age of about fourteen and twenty two. Uh, even through all my college days at, uh, at University of Florida, I mean, Buddy Alexander was a was a great coach, and he he led us to a lot of victories. But I think the the best thing that Buddy did, and he was the eighty six U.S. Amateur champion at Shoal Creek, Buddy always had the he stressed how we practiced and how we thought and he would give us ideas of how to you know have competitive practice against each other you know he wasn't like the 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 technical swing guru per se but I mean he certainly knew about the golf swing but but his main focus was about how our minds thought and I think that's what led him to so so much success at the University of Florida in his 20 plus years of coaching there and and yeah, it's that it's that fine line. I was just recently out at uh at PGA West covering uh doing some live streaming coverage for the Prestige uh Intercollegiate out there and and I'm watching uh, some of these some of these golf coaches out there and they're, you know, they've got the Trackmans, they've got all the all the all the gizmos. They're giving their their players, you know, lots of swing instruction on the range and uh, a lot of hands-on stuff. So it things have definitely evolved over the years and in uh, in that realm.
1: So wait, hold up, hold up. You tell me, you're telling me from the age of 14 to 22, essentially from a, a squeak junior golfer who probably was shooting mid mid 70s at 14 years old, probably impressively shooting mid 70s, number one amateur in the world, two time Walker without essentially having a teacher during that meteoric rise. <laughs> Pretty crazy,
2: isn't it? I, you know, I, I love playing golf. I, I didn't I never loved practicing, but I always loved kind of the 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 strategy of how am I going to how am I going to play each individual golf course? Because, you know, to be a great tournament player, your game has to travel. You have to understand how to how to adjust and adapt your game to, you know, varying weather conditions, grass. Uh, conditions, speed of greens, and you have to do that week after week and, and day after day. And, and so you really, you don't learn that on a flat practice range, you know, in a controlled environment. You have to, I, I think Michael Hebron, the great instructor up at Smithtown Landing in Long Island, uh, you know, he's, he's a, just uh, notorious for for uh, having people understand of how the mind works in, in the, in the golfing arena and, 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 having varied conditions
1: really, uh, you know, impact that, you know, the other thing, so you, that was by the way the, I was loving this streaming of a college event. I'm all for it. This is, uh, there's very few, very few, uh, a tiny percent of the, of the annual college schedule appears on television or in video. So I'm hoping, um, this is a trend and
2: yeah, the, yeah. <laughs>
1: You know, out there we watched guys like uh, Matt Wolf from Oklahoma
2: State and uh, Victor Hovland, the U.S. Amateur champion last year. Who doesn't hit it as far as Matt? He, he's a, he's more of a control player, but man, he ended up winning the individual title. Uh, the LSU team uh, led by Philip Barbary. Philip hold out two eagles in a row on the eighth. They pitched in for about thirty yards for eagle on a par five eighth, and then he hold a wedge from about a hundred yards on nine uh, end up getting top 10 plays in Sport Center so that was uh, that was pretty cool and you know to get college golf out there and, and to get in the top 10 of Sport center uh, you know kind of the first streaming college golf event uh, uh, that that was pretty cool too these guys are pretty dialed in with a lot of with a lot of stuff as I'm sure your your guys are there at Yale and uh, <laughs> another guy that's dialed in in the instructional realm is Bill Harmon And uh, we're going to get to him right now on this first part of the Silver Club podcast. And uh, if you haven't heard of the last uh, two podcasts, take a peek on that on our website, silverclubgolfingsociety.com under podcast. We've had the last two U.S. mid-amateur champions in Kevin O'Connell and Matt Parzi Alley and all of their great stories about playing in the Masters and and Kevin's lead-up to the Masters this year. but uh, So take a peek at that. We'll be back with more uh, real soon. We've got Bill Harmon here. We're sitting in the beautiful Bill Harmon Performance Center in Palm Springs, California, Toscana Country Club. Uh, just a, an unbelievable unbelievable view we're looking at the snow-capped mountains out here and we're sitting this performance center and i mean it's a place where i could hit balls all day i mean uh, (laughs) really special for you for you to join us here bill
0: thank you steve i'm uh, happy to be here and i uh, i've loved following you over the years and i've said many times i think you played in the greatest match in the history of the U.S. Amateur, with the, the epic match with Tiger Beck at Pumpkin Ridge. So it's fun for me to be with you.
2: Well, uh, it was it was a special day, and <laughs> and uh, yeah, if it, if it wasn't for the guy who was probably the, you know, going to be the greatest. Uh, player of all time in Tiger Woods uh, you know I guess I had one and a half hands on the yes, Havermeyer trophy that yes, day did. but yeah and and, and and I guess we, we originally met and, and you even maybe remember kicking me off of the, uh, the range when you were at Newport Country Club in 1990- now that you're a
0: head pro you understand why I did it don't you <laughs> Nin- we were trying to close up 1995 US
2: <laughs> Amateur was at Newport Country Club uh, I've was- always
0: wanted to apologize to you for it but now that you're a pro I think you knew where I was coming from <laughs> my, my staff wanted to go home you know well it, <laughs> It,
2: it didn't bother me that week because I, I end up making to the semifinals and uh, yes, you did. And uh, Newport Country Club's really, really special. And we'll get into some, maybe some architectural sure. talk here in a moment, but uh, you know, just just kind of broad picture here. Um, you know, what was it like growing up as the son of a Masters champion?
0: Well, I've always said that the Harmon brothers were the luckiest four guys in the history of golf. And I've, I've been asked many times, what was it like? And I I say cool, lucky, fortunate, humbling, opportunistic. Uh, uh, there's really, when when I look back on how we grew up and, you know, having Ben Hogan in our house, I was too young really to understand, you know, exactly who Ben Hogan was. But we were exposed to so many great players, you know, Jack Burke was my dad's assistant. Dave Marr was one of his assistants. Mike Mm -hmm. Suchak was one of his assistants. Dick Mary had three assistants that went on to win majors. And I think as you're growing up in that environment, that's all you really know. So you don't really understand how special it is. But I think when you get older and you start working at clubs and you see how the game has changed and progressed, you, you realize that the opportunities afforded you were really beyond comprehension to be honest with you and then to have a and I say this jokingly but it was really cool if I wanted to see a green jacket I just went into my dad's bedroom closet so <laughs> uh, and I could wear that around the house when I was eight years old or something so and and then to be to grow up a Wingfoot, and, and uh, I've been very fortunate to speak at their great four ball event there the Anderson a couple times and I truly believe if it wasn't for Wingfoot, we, we would have never heard of the Harmons. Uh, That's where my dad got his start as an assistant pro for Craig Wood, and then he became the head professional. And Wingfoot was a golf club, and it was consisted of people that loved the game and wanted to have as low a handicap as they could have, and they wanted to play in the Westchester Amateur, the Met Amateur. So I grew up around people that cared about the game. and. Uh, so when I look back on it, uh, the four of us were the luckiest four guys, really, in, in the history of the game. And Mike, I truly believe that.
2: Well, there's, there's not too many golfing families out there uh, that that even come to mind that uh, that have accomplished what you accomplished. Uh, you know, maybe the, you know. Uh, in, on a playing level, maybe the Keeney family. Uh, or the Haas family. The Haas family, yes. Who is. I'm very really
0: close to, so I, I think they feel slighted, you know, people talking about the Harmons, because they were they were good players, you know, we were just kind of okay teachers, but uh, uh, the Haas family is pretty strong too, I'd say.
2: Was there a moment early on when you, when, you know, when you're young, maybe you don't quite realize, you know, maybe who your father is mm-hmm. or or w- where things are going to go, and, I, you know, when you're eight, nine, ten years old, you really don't have have that perspective, but was there a moment when you look back and you say, that's kind of the first moment when I knew that maybe I wasn't like the rest of the kids?
0: Well, I think um, uh, I never really felt like I wasn't like the rest of the kids because I always grew up, fortunately, at a country club. And so I was playing, I was in the junior golf clinics. And and, and as you know, uh, you form relationships and some of those people are still my best friends. So... Uh, I think we always thought it was cool to be a member of the junior clinics at Wingfoot with my dad and his great assistants teaching us. So I always felt pretty inclusive. I never really felt like I was special. We weren't raised to feel like we were special for sure. Uh, Our dad used to say Rank has... Uh, responsibility not privilege so uh, we were pretty much kept in check if we were gonna walk around like we thought we were something different so I, I don't know I never really felt different I think I felt just very fortunate
2: all of your your brothers uh, you know, butch and Craig and your late brother dick um, and you who who kind of got the best of one another Growing up and had the uh, the the dibs well, in the family well, household. Well,
0: Butch was seven years older to the day than me. We have the same birthday, and he's the oldest brother, wow, and I'm the youngest. So Craig and and Dick were in the middle. Um, so just from an age perspective, Butch was always a little bit better than us. But it came a time when we all got into our late teens where we were all pretty equal as players. So if the four of us played, it wouldn't have been an upset if uh, whoever won the match that day. Uh, uh, but Butch kind of left the house pretty early. He, he was in the Vietnam War and stuff like that, you know, as I was in high school golf and Craig and Dick were in high school golf, Butch was over in Vietnam. And, uh, and then we all kind of went our separate ways, which is, uh, looking back on it, something I'm very proud of, is that the four of us had a modicum of success. That's not for me to judge what it was, but we all did it on our own, our own, our own different way. We never hung on each other's coattails we still don't do that we're brothers you know we're brothers that happen to be in the golf profession Uh, we're very proud of everybody's accomplishments uh i i think about my poor dad if someone would have told him that butch was going to be the number one teacher in the world (laughs) growing up i think he'd had a heart attack (laughs) but then craig was the pga club pro of the year so to have two of the four literally reached the pinnacle of their profession i think is really something and dick was a, a I thought the combo platter of the whole family he to me was the most valuable player in, in in our family as far as being a brother and a son and husband and all that stuff and i just hope that i haven't subtracted from the, from the legacy so uh so I, it's just been a heck of a ride that's all i can tell
2: you well i, I hardly think you've subtracted from anything but uh, yeah, I mean, you, we we talk about growing up at places like Wingfoot and then you know Seminole, where your your yeah. father holds the course record still at sixty and Silver uh,
0: Wingfoot. He's got both course records, <laughs> sixty one on each course. Man, wow! With it, the old equipment and bad greens and bad fairways, you know, outrageous it is outrageous. And and, and then you know your brother
2: Craig, being the longtime professional at Oak Hill mm-hmm. Country Club, uh, I met him during the U.S. Amateur there in nineteen ninety eight. Uh, what with all the great architecture that you were around, did you did you ever kind of you know gravitate towards really wanting to know more about the history of architecture? Are you just around all these classic courses, and and uh, have you? How has your appreciation changed over the years or or,
0: or evolved? I spoiled uh, being in the Met section. Uh, I um, but I have to say this in all fairness to modern day architecture. Uh, back then, they were just building golf courses. Uh, now they build communities. So they have to put lakes and waterfalls and flower Like, like the one we're here at Tuscany. Yeah, and, right? and I get that. So it's a totally different world now. But, you know, Wingfoot, to me, was never an unusually special piece of land. Obviously, it's a nice piece of land. But Tillinghast went in there and, uh, in my opinion, it's the best 36 holes on one piece of land in the world. Uh, There were no lakes put in that weren't there. Uh, Wingfoot has really no penalty shots. You have to really hit a bad shot to hit it out of bounds. And you'd have to really hit a bad shot to find water at Wingfoot. So um, I I like the natural courses. I think I got very spoiled growing up in in, uh, Westchester County in the Met section. Uh, The new courses, for some reason, don't turn me on like the older courses. I actually like courses that were built before we knew what fair was. Everybody thinks golf's supposed to be fair now. I don't know why it's supposed to be fair. A you place know? like
2: Oakmont is probably one of the most unfair courses. It actually right? is. <laughs> to me, I,
0: you know, uh, Oakmont to me has about 12 of the best holes I've ever seen, but I'd say it's got six holes that you could say were rinky-dink almost. You can't say that about Wingfoot. There's nothing rinky-dink about that. So I think Oakmont, as good and as tough as it is, I think it has some questionable... You know, when you get Mm -hmm. greens running away from you on a 500-yard par four, that's uh, it's hard. But is (laughs) it good? I don't know. But I also think that Oakmont has some absolutely marvelous holes.
2: Yeah, I totally agree. And and, you know, then then we talk about a place like Seminole. Seminole has this this aura, the the mystique, right? Mm -hmm. With you know, you can you sit in the locker room there, and you can just you can visualize Ben Hogan. You know, with his cigarettes going through the yeah. locker room and the whole my thing. My dad used
0: to play with him a lot down there.
2: Well, t- talk to me. But how, did you ever get a chance to meet him personally oh, and yeah, play I with him, I imagine? Of right? course,
0: I was very young then when Dad was at Seminole. I might have been four or five years old. Sure. But as I got older, and uh, the 59 U.S. Open of Wingfoot was my really first memory of meeting Mr. Hogan. He had dinner over the house one night, and... Uh, Two things I remember. One thing was that as my dad was going out to cook the steaks, he he turned to one of us, or the four of us, we were walking out like little puppy dogs out there with Dad and Hogan. He kind of winked at us and said, Hogan doesn't like anybody to touch his food. <laughs> so my dad slapped his steak on, and he started moving it around, and he said, How do you want your steak made, Ben? And Ben said, Damn it, I told you not to touch my steak. I'll make it myself. So I originally immediately thought this is pretty cool. My dad can needle Ben Hogan. <laughs> you know how many people needled him. <laughs> and then he told my dad that he would probably be not play well that week because he was a jolly golfer that he was going to, you'll get this as a club pro. He says, you're going to be more concerned about your members and their kids. And my dad said, well, that's my job mm-hmm. to be concerned about. <laughs> See, my dad was never a tour player. So when he won the masters, mm-hmm. it was the first tournament he played in all year. So, uh, Hogan told him that he should never pick his eyes off the ground between greens and tees, and he said, if people don't make eye contact with you, they're not upset if you don't say hi. So, as the host pro, I think he was 44 years old, my dad lost that open by two shots, finished third, which is a heck of a feat. (sighs) Maybe better than winning the Masters as I look back on it now. (laughs) And his life would have it, who was his fourth-round pairing? Ben Hogan and Ben shot 76 and my dad shot 70. So I said to my dad years later I said dad did you ever needle Hogan about that you know after he told you that you wouldn't play good that week he said I didn't needle Ben Hogan about golf bill. <laughs> that wasn't that wasn't going to be a fair fight so no I never I didn't needle Ben about that. Well I I think we could sit around here all day and talk about Ben Hogan stories but you know places like Seminole
2: and and maybe some other courses that are that are largely landlocked even a great course across the street from Wingfoot like Quaker Ridge oh, right has, has has we'll we'll talk about it in the sense of of the modern day golfer and 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 distance wise what's what's your take on on how far these young players are playing i mean i know that you've you've taught uh, you and teach a lot it, of touring professionals to this day
0: it's taken the fun out of me watching pro golf on tv cuz every hole's a drive in a wedge and uh I loved watching the last round at Riviera and because the conditions were tough. Some holes guys actually had to hit a five iron into a par four. Isn't that an amazing thing? What an amazing thing. And I was surprised at how many times they missed the green doing it. So I don't blame the players. Uh, Steve, as you know, this is what these kids grew up with. They grew up with the metal woods and the hot balls and all the good instruction and all the measurements and all that stuff. It is not their fault. Uh, every other sport, college football has different rules in the NFL. College basketball has different rules in the NBA. Uh, you can't use aluminum bats in the major leagues. I don't know why uh, pro golf can't make their own rules. Uh, I think that the USGA dropped the ball on the distance part of things. And I think now you can't make a course too long for them. But one of the courses that has the highest winning score every year is Hilton Head. Short, tight, with small greens. <laughs> so I think architecture's got this wrong. If you want to uh, harness these guys a little bit, make the course tighter, greens hard and fast, don't let them control where the ball's going to stop. But if you let them control where the ball is going to stop, it's all over. Yeah, and
2: we're, and we're talking about uh, you know architecture and, and the, the distance this golf ball's going, and, and... You you, you talk, talk to us about uh, what you just mentioned about about Wingfoot and and the uh, and, and and how how they're trying to combat the distance. Well, you know bit. they
0: did pretty good job in uh, I think it was two thousand and six. Five over won the tournament and uh, five over wins the tournament at Foot without penalty shots because there's no water and you you can't literally find find the out of bounds. Uh, but now they've converted uh, Wingfoot probably had the, the hardest. Four opening holes of any golf course in, in championship golf and the fifth hole was a par 5 it was a breather, now they're going to make that a par 4 and that green is not meant to be for a par 4 so I think the first five holes at wing foot in the open in uh, 2020 uh, could very well determine who wins that tournament how those uh, five holes are played to the course of four rounds. I would venture a guess that nobody in the field will play an even par I'd almost make that All bet. Right.
2: And, and then the last four holes there are diabolical as well. About the last
0: six, starting on 13 <laughs> that, that par 3. I think it's... it's uh, You know, when um, Ogilvy won the Open in 06, uh, there was a picture in the clubhouse of uh, Phil with his hands between his... his face between his hands after double in the last hole, and there was a leaderboard right behind him, a hole-by-hole leaderboard. And out of the top ten finishers, only one guy... Played the last four holes in even par one, and it was the guy that won the tournament. Right, and, and he chipped in for par at seventeen and a great up and in at an eighteen <laughs> that he never got credit for really.
2: Outrageous. The uh, I want to say it was either 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 uh, your father or Tom Neaporty would always have a, a bet with his assistants that if they played the last four holes in four 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 and four. That uh, you know, there that would be some. Been, there'd be some award yeah, to be that given. There must
0: have been Tom, but uh, <laughs> in the '59 Open, when Dad played with Hogan the last round, my Dad finished three four three, so he picked up some serious <laughs> uh, spots on the field. So no, it, but that's just a golf course. See, once again, uh, that was built just to be a golf course. Uh, nowadays, we have communities which are great. I'm, li- I'm, I work in one, so I'm, I'm all for it. But it. it, it the courses are just different, and they're meant to be different.
2: Now, now we talked along that same teaching line, and you know, we talk about uh, you know this this great Harmon family. We could sit here for hours discussing uh, you know the the level of knowledge of uh, you know uh, that's you know you you've probably forgotten more things than I know. So I don't know uh, <laughs> about that <laughs> about the game, but it, it's uh, you know just you know just talk a little about. Um, you know how how you know you you know we have Butch and Craig or and yourself all all you know top instructors in the world to some of the greatest uh, the greatest professionals and now even Claude uh, mm-hmm. Claude Butch, III
0: Claude you bet doing great <laughs> and Fantastic. you know teaching
2: uh, you know helping bring Brooks Kep. Yeah. to number one in the mm-hmm. world teaching Dustin Johnson um, you know just just other than you know maybe the, the the teachers in your family which the the wealth of knowledge is so great. Uh, Who are some of the other teachers in the game, or coaches even, that you admire?
0: Well, I think that um, Dad gave us a a blueprint. And uh, one of the things that I don't like about modern-day teaching is people are always figuring out what's wrong with a great player's swing. You know, guys that can't break 85 with an eraser are telling you why Tiger Woods has got a bad swing. So that bothers the hell out of me, to be honest with you. So our Dad taught us to look at good players and figure out why their swing works, Mm -hmm. not what's wrong with it. Mm -hmm. And then if they ask you for advice, you have to figure out what edges can you kind of soften, but don't change the whole thing because talented people are wired differently. And so we were brought up at a very young age, teaching-wise, to admire talent, uh, figure out why the swing works, uh, and and not figure out what's wrong with it. I think nowadays everybody thinks there's a perfect swing out there. And he used to teach us that the Hall of Fame was filled with funny swings and that no two swings are alike and that a good swing was one that you could depend upon under duress or under pressure. It didn't have to be the best-looking swing. It just had to... Uh, he, he thought some people were said they had great swings because they had good rhythm and he said good rhythm doesn't determine a great swing. Hogan's swing was fast, you know, Lanny Watkins fast, and so uh, I think we had that foundation. And then he talked a lot about how do you play the game? See, when he would play with Hogan at uh, Seminole in the 40s and early 50s. They played a game where every time you missed a fairway, you threw $10 in the hat and every time you missed a green. Now you play that game with Ben Hogan you better be a good player. Well, it taught my dad how to play golf. So I think that aspect of it is a little bit lost on the instructors that don't know how to play. They can read track man numbers, and some of them are good enough to change the numbers. But I think Butch's greatest asset as a teacher isn't his technical knowledge. It's his knowledge of, of how to play, the psychology of playing. Uh, my dad was very good at that stuff. So I think when I look at a swing, I'm not a swing geek. I'm a player geek.
1: Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm.
0: You know, no one's ever said swing like Jay Haas, but he's won uh, PGA Tour events in in five decades. I think Sam and Gary are the only two to do that. But no one ever said, hey, take it outside, drop it under, you know, flip it at the bottom, you know. But his swing works because he's got a weak grip, you see. Mm -hmm. So everything he does is based on how he puts his left hand on the club. Well, if someone tried to change his basic motion, Without understanding why it works, you see, he'd never break 80. But the teacher would think he was right, but the player would lose his card.
2: Yeah, I think that, you know, everybody, number one, everybody has a golf DNA, right? I mean, Dustin Johnson uh, does something with, you know, his bowing of his left wrist at the top. My dad played that
0: way. Interesting. So Butch knew that you could play that way if you (laughs) went left to right.
2: Nice, yeah, yeah, but yeah, be no
0: left to right. You, you do see, want to move
2: left. Bruce
0: Litsky was left to right, so my yep. butch yep. never changed that because of, in my opinion, the upbringing with my father, and plus my dad played that way, so. So we had that kind of going for us.
2: Yeah, the and, and I think yeah, you're you're right. Where where, yeah, there's so many teachers out there, or or maybe forget the teacher side, but players. So many players uh, they, they put golf swing and they feel like if I have the perfect golf swing, I'm going to shoot the perfect scores. And, and what, what I don't, what I think they don't understand is that, that golf swing is simply a piece of the pie, right? It's a piece of the pie. I know from my personal experience, I never had, a, 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 my golf swing's probably better now than it, than it's ever been. And I understand it better, but you know, back when I was playing my best, it, it was, uh, you know, I, I played a sweeping draw. I knew that I, I could hit that shot, but I, I managed the golf course well and chipped and putted well, and, but you know, I didn't have the prettiest golf swing, but, but that, that didn't matter. Enough, in I the,
0: remember your swing a little bit, is that you drew it with almost... Uh, an anti-hook follow through and that's how you soften the draw it looked to me because i remember watching you at newport and i remember mm-hmm. watching you on tv you know you had one of those kind of finishes yeah and but you knew how to play and so uh i remember when i was caddying for jay Hosper at the masters one year and dad was sitting on the range with his green jacket on and stuff and uh, uh he always went to watch trevino it's the only guy i ever watched was trevino huh. Because he didn't get to see the players close up, you know, because he would see him on TV. And uh, now Tom Percher knows this story. So Tom knows that it wasn't against him. But someone said to my dad, well, Tom Percher's got a beautiful swing. And my dad says, I'm not watching Percher. I'm watching Trevino. And I was standing right there. And the guy said, why are you watching Trevino? He said, because he's hit more golf shots in the last 30 minutes in this whole range combined. And so he was watching the golf ball. Mm -hmm. He thought that Trevino uh, had maybe the best swing he'd ever seen because it all matched up. Everything Mm -hmm. he did made sense once Mm -hmm. you looked at it. Uh, And so he thought Trevino was one of the best uh, ball strikers he ever saw. Later on, my brother Dick was working with Lanny Watkins. My dad had never seen Lanny close up. He watched him hit balls for two hours. They went in and had lunch. And Lanny said to my dad, what do you think? And that was my dad's famous line. I just changed the route you take to the bank every Monday morning. <laughs> <laughs> so if nobody robs you. And then he went on to tell him that, you know, Lanny, you're the first guy I've ever seen that the ball flight with a driver is just like Hogan's. Well, if you know Lanny, he kind of liked being compared to Hogan. Right. But you see, dad was watching the ball. See, but Hogan went to the ball kind of cuppy, released it to this position and mm. that's what Lanny did see mm-hmm. and they produced a certain ball flight yeah they didn't it, want to miss it left if you looked at it like that you'd say they'd hit it high but they didn't hit it high mm. they, they flighted it beautiful so once again we had the advantage of dad didn't sit there and say I don't like Lanny's tempo and his low hands he'll never be any good mm. he's looking at the guy saying this is as good as I've ever seen a guy hit a golf ball
2: yeah, the, the principles, you know, everybody has their certain, you know, foundation of their swing. And, and yeah, you're right. to, to don't, don't change what's working and, and move on. When you talk about Jay Haas a little bit, and, and, you know, tell us a story about, you know, caddying for Jay Haas. And how many years did you caddy for I caddied
0: for him 10 full years. Mm-hmm. And then I caddied for him a bunch off and on. I went to work and back and got back into the golf business. Uh, I caddied for him quite a bit in his resurgence when he was 49 and 50. He made the President's Cup team and the Ryder Cup team. And uh, a couple things people wouldn't know about Jay, because he's one of the nicest guys you'll ever meet in your life. But on the course, everyone says, "Guy, he's so easygoing. And I said, well, you're not caddying for him. I said, just (laughs) because he's not throwing clubs doesn't mean that he's not getting hot. So I don't think I've met very few golfers that uh, hated hitting bad shots more than Jay Haas. Mm-hmm. Uh, I caddied for him in the senior open last year at the Broadmoor, okay? Mm-hmm. He was 64 years old, and with nine holes to play, I think was in three shots of the lead, and playing <laughs> beautifully. Wow. And we struggled the last nine, and he was extremely irritated. And then he hit a bad drive on the 18th hole and proceeded to uh, berate the situation that only the caddy would know, mm-hmm. you know? He really went ape is what he did. <laughs> and I was driving him to the airport, and uh, he turned to me, and he said, I apologize for getting all irritated out there. And I said, why? That's why you're still good, because you care, you see. I said, I, I looked at it as a reason why you're still good, because mediocrity has no place in your life in golf. You have pride. You have pride in your performance. You don't like failing in front of other players. You don't like failing in front of other people. You don't like failing. And I said, if you accepted that, and you didn't react the way you reacted, I'd have told you it's time to quit. But the fact that at your age, that bothered you that much, tells me why you've been good this long. And as you alluded to before our conversation, that Jay just broke his age last week in a Champions Tour event (laughs) at age 65, shot 64. Uh, That's 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 pretty salty.
2: Okay, we're gonna pause it right there with part one of our talk with the great instructional mind of Bill Harmon. Next time when we come back for part two, he's going to talk Jack versus Tiger off the tee, some of his instructional thoughts that everybody can use, as well as his well-noted battle with addictions and how he's come out so positively on the other end. Thanks so much for listening to this Silver Club podcast. Remember, you can catch us on social media on Instagram and Twitter at Silver Club Golf. Look forward to catching up with you again next time.